This is Baffled, David DeRoche, and you're listening to episode number eight, an interview with the man who runs the well-respected Quinnipiac University poll, Doug Schwartz. Polls are a lot like news stories. They can tell us about what's going on, they can inform the public about a moment in time, and they can also drive us a little crazy. At least they drive me crazy. There are so many polls out there, and if you look hard enough, you can find a poll that proves just about anything. Did you know that 8 out of 10 white people actually think that Michael Bolton is an incredible artist? I just made that up, but who knows? It might actually be true, at least according to some poll. But there are all kinds of polls out there, some good, some bad, and actually some that are specifically crafted to show a trend that might actually not exist, but it's made to help a politician gain or retain power. That's not the kind of poll we do over at the Quinnipiac University Polling Institute. Associate Vice President Doug Schwartz has been running and building the Quinnipiac poll since 1994, when then-President John Leahy recruited him from CBS News. Under his guidance, the polls gain respect and popularity and is often cited by major news organizations. I interviewed Doug back in late 2019, before the 2020 election and before the pandemic. Some of what we talk about is tied to that era. You probably remember that President Trump was in the middle of an impeachment battle. A few things have changed at the poll since we talked. The poll's call center is now currently closed, and the callers are working remotely. Also, the callers now have access to people who live in Connecticut and who still have out-of-state cell phone numbers. Back in 2019, they didn't have those numbers, but they do now. This allows them to capture a larger variety of residents. But come on, people. Get your CT area code. Stat. But this is something we also talk about in this episode. We talk about the fact that they did not have the out-of-state cell phone numbers back then. The poll's also in the process of designing what Doug calls a, quote, signature academic experience in collaboration with the university, and is also building a new commercial polling unit that would work with private clients. I can't tell you much more than that, but if I learn more, I'll definitely let you know. So let's get to it. My 2019 interview with the head of the Quinnipiac poll, Doug Schwartz. What motivates you to do a poll? What sort of things are you thinking about when you say, okay, let's do a poll on this issue? How does that sort of come about? So you're a news guy, right? Yeah. It's the same idea. We're just tracking what's going on in the world and saying, boy, this is a really interesting news event. I bet a lot of people have an opinion on it and that journalists and the public would be really interested in a poll on this topic. So you guys do polls on all kinds of things, but a lot of times they're politically related issues, social issues that are happening. How do you figure out who to call? What's that process like? So the who to call part, it's pretty, we've pretty much been using the same process that we instituted when I came aboard here at Quinnipiac in 1994. And very simply, we do telephone polls and we get the phone numbers um, in a way in which it's called random digit dial. Uh, phone numbers are randomly generated by a computer. Okay. So we get our phone numbers. We get a lot of bad numbers, a lot of businesses, disconnects, facts, you name it. Um, but we do get residential households too. And um, once we call a residential household, we ask for the person who has the next birthday to speak with. Um, women are more likely than um, men. So we randomize the selection process there. We call every phone number that we get at least four times because there are some people that are really easy to reach, get them on the first attempt. Other people are really tough. 
For example, young people are tougher to reach than older people, mm. so it's important to call multiple times over multiple days, including weekends, different times. So our motto is we work hard to reach the hard-to-reach people. So that's interesting. I'm, I'm guessing it's harder to reach young people because they're less likely to have a landline and, and cell phone numbers are harder to access. Is that Not so much that. They're just less likely to be at home. Okay. But I'm glad you brought up the cell phones. Yeah, how's that work? Uh, because if you didn't call cell phones, you really couldn't get a representative sample. As you said, with young people, overwhelmingly, they only have a cell phone. So that's the only way that you can reach them. So it's really important to call cell phones. And, and one thing to know about sort of differences between polling methodologies. So we use live interviewers here at Quinnipiac. Uh, students and non-students alike are our interviewers. But there are some polls commonly known as robo-polls mm. that use an automated voice they are not allowed to call cell phones. They can oh, only okay. call landlines. They're prohibited by federal law from calling cell phones. You can't use an auto dialer to call a cell phone. So we use live interviewers manually dialing every number so we can call people on their cell phones. And uh, slightly more than half of the national population uses only a cell phone, mm. does not have a uh, landline. So it's really important uh, to do that. So when this computer is generating these phone numbers randomly, obviously, to your point, it's generating some phone numbers that are not human beings, they're businesses, or they're not in service anymore. And obviously, the computer is not a Republican or a Democrat, right? So it's not right. focusing on solely on, on a party. Are there ways to make that more efficient? Are there improvements that could be made to say we're going to have a higher success rate? And, and I guess the follow-up to that would be, what is the success rate? Like out of all the calls that you make, how many actually end up giving you information? About half of the people that we reach that are eligible to participate in the poll, and that is people that are 18 years of age or older, do the poll. A lot of people are surprised that we get that high of a response rate that half the people cooperate and do the survey. Mm. The trick of it for us is that is to get people on the phone in the first place because so many people screen their phone calls. Mm. And we also get a lot of bad numbers, as I mentioned earlier. So that's the tough part about doing it. Just getting somebody on the line is really the trick of it for us. But once we get someone on the line, we have a pretty high likelihood of getting them to do the survey. And in fact, in some places like Connecticut, we have a higher cooperation rate than 50. It's closer to 60, 65, where we're better known. So, you know, that, that's how it works for us. Do you guys ever leave messages and we do, people call we do. you back? Yeah. We say we're calling from the Quinnipiac University poll and we'll call you back another time because you're right. I mean, that is an effective way for us to get more people. We hope that once they hear who it is, that the next time they'll pick up. Do people ever call you back? Or do you, um, do they, do they, can, can people reach out they to you? They can. You know, that is something that we're looking into. You had mentioned earlier on how can we be more efficient. We're looking into the technology of allowing people to call us back after being originally called by us. Right now, we don't have the technology for it, but we're, we're looking into it because that would be a way to increase our efficiency. And anything that we can do to increase our efficiency without uh, compromising our accuracy is what we want. 
I can imagine um, that's a delicate process because if, if your number gets out there and then you have all kinds of crazy people calling you <laughs> or calling you multiple times and giving you different answers because they want to mess with the poll, there are a lot of, I guess, issues about that you have to think about. For yeah, we like want to make sure we can check that too, yeah. right? Like the person that's calling in, were they really somebody that we called? So we have to match that with the phone number that we called. We have to, we do everything with computers, so we have to actually get an interviewer in front of a computer who gets that phone call, able to jump in the survey with that respondent. So there's a lot of logistical issues for us to overcome, but that's what we're trying to do. It kind of alluded to um, some partisan jokes with the you know computer not being Republican or Democrat, but I'm sure people yeah. think that that there's a leaning right in terms sure. of who you're p- figuring out. Is that is that a concern you get from people? Well, the the thing is, we get criticized by both Republicans and Democrats for when they're losing it right. in a campaign. So you must be doing something right. We must be doing something right because we do get criticized from both sides, and that's really the one thing that they have in common. They don't like a negative message that their Mm. candidate isn't doing well. um, And so oftentimes they'll try to come up with something. But in the end, it just comes down to, oh, you know, you're a Republican or you're a Democratic poll. It doesn't happen all that much because most folks know we're independent and we're just trying to call it as we see it. You know, the worst thing for an independent pollster like us um, is to be wrong. So for us, we just care about, you know, getting it right. And also, not just with the elections, but also on the issues, we're very transparent with how we word the questions. You could see everything in terms of how we word questions up on the website. So if people, you know, think that we tilted it towards the right or towards the left, they could see that. And the worst thing for our reputation would be for people to say, boy, you know what? They really are asking their questions in a way that favors Republicans or Democrats. We don't want that. Mm. We want to be trusted by everybody. Mm. So we do our best to ask unbiased questions. So what's that process like? Like, how do you figure out what questions to ask? And then how do you figure out how to ask that question? That seems like it's very sensitive because to your point, you don't want people to think that you're coming off as biased. So how do you present them in this very, in a balanced So in terms of the subject matter, it's really a question of what's going on in the news. Whatever it is, like right now we've got an election going on, we've got an impeachment going on. So for us, it's pretty straightforward in terms of the topics. But in terms of the specifics, that's where it gets tough. Just as an example, with impeachment, There's not a lot of history. There is some in terms of pollsters asking about impeachment um, with Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. That was quite a while ago. But this situation is much different. So while there are some standard impeachment questions that pollsters have asked, all of the the details uh, about this specific case are so different than what happened with Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. So we have to come up with new questions and we have to decide, you know, what are the most pertinent, important questions to ask? There are so many aspects of this particular impeachment inquiry about what happened or didn't happen with Ukraine. I mean, there's some basic things we can ask about whether you think the president should be impeached and removed, how much attention are you paying to news, but the specifics, Mm. that gets harder Mm. about asking about, you know, did the president withhold aid? Did he withhold aid in order to get specific political favors in return? 
um, how you word that question is very important. And uh, all the questions that we ask, did he abuse his power? Did he you know, obstruct Congress? Well, how should we be wording those questions if we should be even asking those questions mm-hmm. at all? So it's really a team process. So the way it works is, you know, we come up with ideas and then, you know, we go from the ideas to the specific questions, but we'll never go right into the field without having those specific questions vetted. It's a team process where several members of the polling team will weigh in and make sure that we'll make sure that everyone is comfortable that first of all, are the questions clear? That's the most important thing. And then the second thing is, are they balanced? Do people think that they're fair questions? And if anyone disagrees, you know, we'll go back and forth until we can come up with wording. If it's a clarity issue or if it's a fairness issue and balanced question, then we'll keep working at it until we get it. Other times we'll be in a situation where people may say, you know what, I really don't think we should be asking that question at all. And we'll have an internal discussion. Well, why shouldn't we ask it or why should we ask it? Um, So we'll go back and forth. I want to ask a question just about overall perception. So after the 2016 election, everybody was turning on polls and saying, everybody got it wrong. Do you feel like that polls nowadays have an image perception problem? And how do you think polls are working or can work to sort of improve that? So I do think that there's a common misperception, of course, after 2016. And I think that you know, people think the polls were way off, but they really weren't way off. So that's the first thing that I'd like to sort of get out there is people should know they really weren't that way off. In fact, if you look at history, of the history of polling, they really weren't that much different in terms of accuracy than they've ever been. Um, the other point that I like to emphasize is if you look at the national polling that was done, they were especially accurate. They really nailed it. Um, if you look at the final polls, they had Hillary Clinton winning the national popular vote by about three points. She ended up uh, winning actually by two points. That's great. That That's dead on. You can't do much better than that. Um, and it wasn't just one or two polls. Almost all the polls were showing that at the end. So the national polls were right. Now let's talk about the state polls. They were less accurate. Many of them did well, but there were some state polls that were significantly off, and I I would be the first one to acknowledge that. The reasons, though, I think are important. So for some of the state polls that were out there, they didn't poll to the end. And what we saw in the exit polls, especially for some of the most important states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, that were decided by less than a percentage point, there was a significant number of late deciders that went for Trump. They said, you know, Hillary was going to win in those states. She didn't win. But if you look at the folks that decided in the last few days, according to exit polls, a significant number, about 15% of people deciding only in the last few days, they tended to be overwhelmingly for Trump. Mm -hmm. So that's one explanation. You always have to remember that polls are snapshots and people in elections can be especially tricky when you get a, a decent number of people voting at the end and overwhelmingly for one candidate. So that's one reason why some of those state polls were off. 
Now there's another reason why that gets to methodology. So one of the reasons why some of the state polls were particularly far off is that they underestimated the share of white non-college educated voters. Now why did they do this? So there's something in polling called weighting the data that is statistically adjusted to make sure it matches the census. Now, some state pollsters did not do that. It's something that major national pollsters do. We weight by education in all our national and state polls, but some state pollsters, they did not adjust their samples to make sure that they reflect the educational background of their states. And they ended up having too few white non-college educated people in their samples, and white non-college educated voters were a key voting group for Trump. Mm. So hopefully this time around, those pollsters will be doing that. Mm. Now, in terms of perceptions about polls, there are good polls and there are not so good polls. And there's a great proliferation of polls now, and you're seeing so many of those. And my basic beef is that there are some polls that you should pay attention to, the Pews, the Gallups, the, uh, the Quinnipiacs, that adhere to the highest practices in survey research. There are others that are not random sample surveys. Uh, many of them are online that are not true random samples. There are robo-polls that I mentioned earlier. Um, that are not the highest quality polls, you're not going to get the most accurate data from those polls. And my basic thought is that give less attention. The media should give less attention to, the average citizen should pay less attention to polls that really are not practicing the highest methods. And I'm guessing likely often those polls are run by people with some sort of agenda written in a way to elicit some sort of response. Not all the time. Yeah. Maybe sometimes they have a you know an objective goal, but that can be very misleading. If you do a poll and you want to, you want results and you seek out certain results, you're going to do a poll that seeks out those results and you're going to find people who support that result. Yeah. So that's certainly a different issue. So there are some public pollsters that, again, practice sort of low-quality methodology. But then you've got sort of your campaign pollsters or your interest group pollsters that do have an agenda. And sometimes and it might be hard for people to, to know – where it's coming from. Is this a, if it's done by a reputable organization or is it done by one of these you know, partisan folks? That's probably a first question that you should ask about any polls. Yeah. Who did it? Who paid for it? Yeah. And if it's paid for by a, a Republican group, a Democratic group, a liberal group, conservative group, of course they have an axe to grind. And, you know, we talked earlier about the wording of questions, so important. And you word a question a certain way because you want to see a desired result. That can happen. Right. Or you only want to release certain results. That can happen as well. You don't want to release results that are unfavorable to your cause. That's why I'm such a big believer in transparency. Mm. And our field is all about transparency. We're a member of the American Association Public Opinion Research Transparency Initiative, which basically says we're going to put it all out there. We're going to tell you everything and more about mm. <laughs> more than you wanted to know about how we did the poll, all the questions that were asked, all our results exactly how many people were interviewed, what were the dates, what was the methodology. We tell you everything. So I'm a big believer in transparency. And if a poll is not transparent with how they did it, when they did it, who's sponsoring all that, I would take it with a huge grain of salt. Mm. I thought it was interesting what you said a minute ago about 
how the national polls knew or projected Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote by two points. And in this, it sort of gets into the deeper discussion of how we run our democracy, you know, but not winning the electoral college votes, but winning the popular vote. I mean, how could a poll really figure that out? I mean, I guess you could if you're looking at states and you know how many electoral college votes they get. Is that something that yeah. polls are trying to do, like figure out how th- it plays out by state? I think more so now. In fact, that used to be sort of our niche. I mean, we came in in 2008 and we created something called the Swing State Poll where we would poll in Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the most important swing states, and we do it as a package. So three separate state polls, but released at the same time. And this particular package was really cool because it's told you who would win the election since 1960. Whoever has won two of those three states, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, would win the election. So we thought we were putting out something pretty cool. Um, we did in 2008. It was successful in, in showing that Barack Obama was going to win. He swept all three. It was successful in 2012 as well. And then in 2016, we did various packages. We were fairly accurate. So in Ohio, we got close. Um, We had Trump winning. We said he was up by five. He won by eight. Florida was a toss-up. We didn't know. I think we had Trump up by one, which is way too close, given the margin of error could go either way. Um, he ended up winning it. He was down by one, but he ended up winning it by one. Um, so, he, And he also won Pennsylvania. So he did win the trifecta, and he did win the election. Now, in Pennsylvania, unfortunately for us, we had stopped polling 10 days before the election. I wish we had polled closer. We had Hillary by five. Again, my, my thinking is we were off largely because there was movement at the end and if we had we, we would have caught the movement had we pulled closer to the election. Mm. I do think this whole electoral college versus the national popular vote is is uh, responsible, uh, a significant part for the misperception about polls, right? Because the national polls kept saying Hillary's ahead, Hillary's ahead, Hillary's ahead. But a lot of the swing states were close. We were saying it was close. Consistently, we saw Florida being very close and Pennsylvania was close and Ohio was close. And we're saying, you know, it's not a slam dunk for Hillary. These states are close. So I think that's, that was part of the problem is that everyone's focusing on the national. And that's fine if it's a blowout nationally. If, if Hillary was ahead by 10, there's no way she's going to lose Electoral College. But you look at a race where it's only two, three points nationally, that could go the other way in Electoral College. I mean, it happened in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. It's such a close national popular vote. Um, and the popular vote winner, Al Gore, lost Electoral College because of Florida. Um, In 2004, people forget it was actually very close. Uh, Nationally, Kerry lost by three points. But in Ohio, had he won Ohio, he would have, which was close, he would have won the the Electoral College. One state Mm. could have made all the difference. It was close. Mm. 
So I, I have a feeling in this election, I've already begun to see more of it. There are going to be more pollsters, quality pollsters, that focus on the key states. And there's going to be a bunch of them. It's not, I, I think it's not just Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and, and Florida, all those that were decided by less than a point. But there are more. There's Arizona. Um, there's North Carolina. There's Georgia. There's Texas. It's going to be an interesting election because there's going to be a lot of states that are up for grabs. Are there going to be, so this obviously being a very, very contentious election, uh, we have a president, there's an impeachment inquiry happening there. I think they're at this moment, they're drafting uh, articles of impeachment in the House. Um, Are there different things or new things that you're trying to do to sort of grasp the divisiveness or the the impact that this election might have on this country? Are there anything, any sort of new polls or new ideas you're going to try to pursue in the upcoming year? You know, that's a good idea to think of, of something new. I will say... You know, one of the interesting tidbits is that the the Trump numbers never move on job approval. So one of the things that I'm wondering about is how much is set in stone. Now, traditionally, you know, you always say you got to wait until September and October to to get closer to the election and what events happen and what's the economy and does something happen with another country and just, just so many variables. This is an interesting election because it may get set very early. You may have the folks that are absolutely dead set against voting for uh, President Trump and those who are, and a very small number of people that can actually be moved. Mm. Um, so it's going to be interesting. And, and also, how much does this election look at like the last one? You know, Hillary won 48 to 46 percent. Are we looking at another 48 to 46 kind of election? Will there be a third? A lot of people forget third party candidates were very significant in the last election. We were talking about some of those states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, where Jill Stein won more votes than was the margin between Hillary and Trump. It could have made the difference. I'm wondering, are we going to see a significant third party candidate like we saw last time with Johnson and Stein? You mentioned before that when you were looking at the number in Florida in 2016, how you had, I think, Trump winning by a point, but that's within the margin of error. What is the margin of error? How do you figure that out? Okay, so margin of error um, is based on the number of people that we interview. So typically we interview about 1,000 people, it gets us a margin of error about plus or minus three percentage points. So what that really means is suppose we find Trump with a 40% approval rating, that is 40% approve of the way he's handling his job as president, plus or minus three points. So the actual percentage in the population, not in our poll, but in the population that approves of the job he's doing is somewhere between 37 and 43%. That's the plus or minus three. A lot of people forget that, you know, these are estimates. That we're not, when we do a poll, we're not interviewing everyone. Because we're interviewing just a sample, That's why there is a margin of error or sampling error. There's always going to be. If we interviewed everyone, you wouldn't have this margin of error. But because it's just a subset of the population, um, chosen randomly, by the way, that's an important thing. If only you can only calculate a margin of error if you have a random sample. If you have a random sample, then you can say, okay, we can estimate this range 
uh, of a certain number. So that is always important, especially as we get closer to elections, that people ex should know that if you're talking about a race that's within a few points, it's going to be too close to call. You shouldn't assume that if a candidate is up by just a few points that you can just take it to the bank. It could go the other way. But why minus plus or minus three percent? Why not four or two? How do you get to it the could three? Be. It should sort of become the, the standard is, is sort of the best. But there are polls that use smaller samples and you have less precision. Um, part of it is also a cost benefit analysis. Um, we could get you know, a smaller sample, maybe two points, but it would require us interviewing thousands more people just to get that extra point of precision. And it's simply just too costly for us to do it. But yeah, we would, especially in the close races, you want to be as precise as possible. The, the other reason for us to try to get decent sized samples is we like looking at subgroups. And sometimes it's the most interesting part of the story is, you know, how do men and women uh, differ? How do older versus young people see an issue? And you're going to have a much larger margin of error for these subgroups. So we want to be able to have a large enough overall sample so that we can talk about some of these interesting subgroups. So is that in terms of um, determining the margin of error, I guess statisticians or people who study this have all agreed that if you have a sample size that's this big, this is going to be your margin of error? Yeah, I mean, there is a formula that There's I can tell. There, oh, is okay. a, there is a formula. We can you get know, nerdy and go out. And it's 1.96 times the square root of PQ over N. But I know if, exactly what you just said. So, you know, <laughs> we can... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, so that, that, there, there is, is a formula. formula. There is an actual formula. But the most important thing to remember about that formula is that it's related, the N that I said mm -hmm. is related, is your sample size. And the bigger your sample size, the smaller your margin of error. That's the heart of it. But you get kind of diminishing returns. Right, like I said, point. after yeah. a thousand, you, you know, you, it doesn't really improve that much. But you will see a big difference, let's say, between a pull of a thousand where you get your plus or minus three versus a pull of 500 when you're talking like a plus or minus five. And if you're talking about like a hundred subgroup size, then you're up into like a plus or minus 10. Mm. And that's why, you know, you don't see a lot of small subgroups reported because there is such a big margin of error on them. So what are some other questions people ask you? What are some other things people bring to your attention when they when a poll comes out or just generally? So oftentimes I get asked that big picture question, you know, people don't trust polls. They want to know how you can only talk to a thousand people and represent, you know, uh, millions and I often like to give the pot of soup analogy. It's something that George Gallup, the founder of the famous Gallup poll, used to give. He said, you know what? You're making a pot of soup and you want to know how that pot of soup tastes. You don't have to drink the entire pot of soup. You could take a spoonful and you get a pretty good idea. It's the mm -hmm. same thing with sampling uh, a population and trying to get an idea of what the whole population thinks. Another question that we often get is, you know, why haven't I ever gotten called from you guys? And I'll say, you know, we, we only interview a thousand and, you know, we're talking to a thousand people and, and out of the nation of 300 million plus people, you, you don't have a very good chance of being included. And, and then I, I like to tell people about an old uh, George Gallup story about when he was once asked about um, by a woman. She said, you know, I've never been called uh, by your poll. 
uh, Mr. Gallup, and he said, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning. Mm. And she said, I have been struck by lightning. <laughs> so, there you go. There, so that's that's the famous Gallup story. All she has left to do now is be interviewed by a pollster. <laughs> How does this computer program get the numbers? How is it accessing numbers? Mm. Like, is it possible for somebody to have a phone number that just doesn't live in the system? Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. So let me talk a little bit more about how the phone number gets accessed and then how we're trying to get some of the people that get missed. So let's say we're doing a a poll in Connecticut. We know what the pre-existing area codes are. We know there's 203, there's 860. So we get a certain number of pre-existing area code and exchange combinations. So you've got your error code, you've got your next three digits, that's the exchange, and then the final four digits of the phone number are selected completely at random. The reason why we want to do this is we want to make sure we get not just people that are listed, but also unlisted phone numbers. This is the reason why pollsters came up with this method. Now, it's not the most efficient method, as we talked earlier, go through a lot of numbers, but it is the way to include the unlisted. Now, let me talk a little bit about some people that are, you know, that, that were missing in some of our state polls. So suppose you have only a cell phone and you are moving, you moved into Connecticut from another state, you moved in from New York, and your cell phone number is 212. Keep the New York area code, yeah. Yeah. So that is something that we're looking into ways, how do we reach those people? Mm. Because they are becoming a more and more significant part of the population. Mm. So we have been looking into ways to reach them. One uh, way that we've been exploring is using billing records that if you know the billing records of somebody, um, that that is a way that, you know, they can live in Connecticut. You can call them on their New York number because they're getting billed in Connecticut. So that's an, an example of a way that we're trying to figure out how to deal with a problem where we're not necessarily reaching everyone that we want to reach on the phone. Or you just reach out to them right now. Come on, people, get a Connecticut cell phone. There you, you go. What are you waiting on? It would make our jobs easier. You know, this New York era code is not as cool as you think it is. So what other questions do people bring up to you? Like, what are some of the things you hear? Feedback you get or criticisms? One thing that people might not realize is, you know, we're not taking money um, from any candidates. We're completely independent. You had asked earlier about, you know, Republican, Democrat. We think it's really important for our image and perception uh, you know, of the poll that people know we're not taking money from Republicans or Democrats, um, completely independent, that we view this as a, you know, a, a public service. A lot of folks are like, well, why are you, you doing it? So I think of it as you know, we're contributing to the national conversation, right, that there's people are talking about impeachment. In fact, this is a case where or an example where polls play an especially important role, right? I mean, impeachment of a president is very serious, one of the most serious things um, that Congress can do. So it's important, I think, that Congress know, well, how do people feel about it? It was really fascinating back in 1998 um, with the impeachment of President Clinton is that a lot of pundits thought once that Monica Lewinsky scandal broke that he would be out of office and the people would rise up. 
and it never happened. In fact, he became more popular. He had high 70% job approval ratings. People never supported impeaching Bill Clinton. Very interesting. Now it's a different situation. There's a lot more support for impeaching President Trump. Um, and I'm sure members of Congress are looking at the polling data. So I look at it as we're, we're performing an important public service, not just in this one specific uh, case of President Trump, but um, you know, when, when we're into an election and people want to know who's up, who's down, but not just those questions, but why? What's driving people to Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden? What are the important issues um, in the Democratic primary? So I feel like we ha we're playing an important role that we're helping journalists, we're helping people that want to know what's going on in election. Uh, more and more people are paying attention to this election in particular. Um, so I think we're playing a, a, a valuable educational role. You don't have to get specific, but I want to ask, has anybody ever approached you, like a Republican, Democrat, saying, we want to do this poll, we want to pay you to do it, and, and it doesn't have, has it ever happened? or? I mean, I'm sure we've been approached, yeah. we've been asked, and then we would say, sorry, it's yeah. not something that we do. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if they would ever ask you, you know, to try to do a poll that favors them, too. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, Doug, we really want a poll that shows us ahead and... Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing about the campaigns is they do it in a much more subtle way. Yeah. So they're into polling for a different reason than, than we are. They want to know information that can help them win the election, right? And we just want to put out unbiased uh, public opinion information. So when they do a poll, they're going to test different messages. Um, and there are a lot of good quality campaign pollsters, but their, their goal is not to provide good polling information. Their goal is to help their candidate win. So sometimes this is just one specific example where the media and public have to be careful about getting results from campaigns, is a campaign pollster will ask, so who are you going to vote in, in, in the election? Then after that, they'll hit the respondent with a lot of negative messages mm. to see if that moves the dial at all on their opponent. And then they'll ask, now who are you going to vote for? And sometimes a campaign will put out the horse race number, but you don't know, are you getting that clean version or are you getting that version that they use after they've provided negative messages about their opponent? Mm. And, and I guess part of the, the perception uh, challenge for pollsters like yourself is being conflated with these other polls, right? And, yeah. And that because you just the word poll doesn't necessarily mean it's done in the same way. You, to your point, we talked about earlier, a poll could also be done by campaigns or people with partisan agendas. And so sussing that out, maybe we just need new language, right? Maybe like we need, uh, you know, a, a professional poll or, or, you know, unbiased poll or nonpartisan poll. And I, I guess independent is independent a good one. poll. Yeah, because you do hear those. But I definitely feel like people are conflating and that could be part of the image problem. Yeah. And also, I do feel like they conflate high quality with low quality polls. Right. That's that is my concern is that. A poll is a poll is a poll, especially out in, in social media world where people will tweet out numbers from a pollster no one's ever heard of. That's another thing that I'd say, you know what, if you haven't heard of the pollster and they're not being transparent about their methods, I would have a, you know, take it with a big grain of salt. But really, there's such an appetite for polls on anything that if it's in a state, let's say, where no one has seen a, a particular 
campaign-related po poll and, and the political reporters want something <laughs> and somebody does some real crappy poll and just throws it out there and, and the reporters are like, oh, good, I got some numbers. And they're not necessarily, you know, really looking at the details. And I know some of this can be hard. Um, to go through, but it is important to look at the details. Do people ever reach out to you and say, this is a poll, a good idea, and then you, you take that poll idea and sort of develop it and actually do it? Does that ever happen? Um, you know, rarely, but it, it can happen, especially with reporters. Hmm. You know, sometimes reporters will say, you know, there's a big issue coming up at the state capitol. And you might not have heard of it or whatever, just passing this along kind of thing. So, um, you know, I'm always open to good ideas wherever they come from. So, yeah, we do get ideas. And every so often I'll see something and I'll be like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And I'll keep an eye on it. Mm. That's probably the biggest function that it serves mm. is that it alerts me to an issue that I might not be aware of. What about the people who are actually doing the phone calls? So you mentioned you had students and non-students. How do you find them? And is, is there ever worry that maybe their political beliefs are interfering in their work? Mm, I'm glad you brought that up. So we work really hard at the training of our interviewers. We take it very seriously. Every interviewer has to go through a several-hour process. They learn professional interviewing techniques, like you always have to read the question as exactly as it's written. You can't provide feedback to respondents. Even something so subtle as an okay can influence a respondent. Mm, wow. um, you have to probe ambiguous responses. Like, let's say we say, do you approve or disapprove of the way Ned Lamont is handling his job as governor? And somebody says, he's doing a fair job. Well, that's not approve or disapprove, and you can't interpret what that means. So um, you got to probe, read the question again. So in addition to the training, all of our interviewers are constantly supervised. So we have supervisors who listen in on actual interviewers and monitor them and give them feedback. And we will even do something called callbacks where we will call back people and make sure that they were interviewed. Just to, again, a quality control measure. So quality control is so important for us. Now we have both students and non-students working for us. We have a lot of political science majors. It's a great job for a political science major, psychology major, sociology, marketing. Um, if you're interested in current events, you learn a lot about current events. You learn a lot about politics. You learn a lot about survey research. So it's a great place to work. But because we're a year-round operation, we don't just work the academic calendar year. We also have a significant non-student uh, staff, interviewer staff as well. Mm. Is there anything else? I mean, maybe you just want to say a little bit about um, the history of the podcast. Sure. Or the, 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 podcast. the, <laughs> the poll. <laughs> history started today, but uh, history of the, the Q poll. The history of the Q poll started in 1988 by a marketing uh, research professor, Paul Felsigno, who used it as an educational exercise. And he started doing Connecticut state polls on politics. The university decided they wanted to expand the poll to New York and New Jersey. They brought me aboard in uh, 1994. And then really it's been uh, a story of gradual growth. We now poll in more than a dozen states. 
um, not just New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, but also really important states in a presidential election like Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And now we do a lot of national polls. That's probably been the biggest change over the last few years is I think we were best known as a state poll that did some national polls. And now in the last few years, I think we've become known more as a national poll that does some state polling. So that's been really the big change in the last few years. You any state folks ever complaining about that? Well, oh, you don't mm-hmm. care about us little state folks anymore. Now you're national. You don't, does that ever happen? Uh, not, so, not much. so much. Not so much. We still do our state polls. So yeah. people are getting the information. I mean, right now, if you think about it, there's, the national news has really crowded out everything. Yeah. Everything about um, impeachment and the presidential election. Um, you don't hear as much state news anymore. It's hard to get mm. oxygen for state news in this national environment. Very, very true. All right, podcast consumers, that was my 2019 interview with Doug Schwartz, the Associate Vice President of the Quinnipiac University Polling Institute. Thank you for sharing your ears with us. We need some things to talk about, so if you've got a news story you want us to rip apart, or maybe you've read something that was amazing and you'd like us to explore that, definitely let us know. You can find me on Twitter at SavingEJ, or you can email me at david.deroche at qu.edu. That's david.desrochees at qu.edu. This podcast is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our producer is Grace McGuire. Our social media coordinator is Jillian Catalano. And our videographer is Jake McCarthy. Please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. To learn more about this podcast and others, visit qu.edu slash podcast. And also check out our new website, quinnipiacpodcasts.com. Thank you so very much for listening to Baffled with David DeRoche. Until next time. 